You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of their father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together had shaken, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Now flip over with me to 1 Samuel 27. We'll read the whole chapter. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, He no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the the Jeshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David, and David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehu. Jerahimites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us, tell about us, and say, so David has done. Such was his custom. All the while, he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Let's pray. So Father, we come now to your word to feast, to listen, to trust, and to be judged and to be shown mercy. So God, may we listen to your word. May your word bear fruit in our lives and in our city. In your name we pray. Amen. A fruitful exercise uh, as we continue through Samuel uh, would be to be spending um, a, a large amount of time reflecting on, meditating on the Psalms. It's actually a, a fascinating exercise in addition to being um, particularly helpful in, in understanding some of what's going on just beneath the surface of the text of First Samuel. Um, as you find again and again, kind of lining up with, with events in David's life, um, you, you find in the Psalms uh, his prayers to God, his songs to God during that same period of time. It actually begins to illuminate the, the nature of what's happening in First and Second, and particularly as we move into Second Samuel and get into more of the details of David's life. Um, uh, one of the one of the texts um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 23 um, in a moment as we uh, at the at the end of our time before we t- come to the table where where, where David says um, in the presence of my enemies you set a table for me um, that here in the presence of those who oppose David um, God actually provides for David um, going into next week's chapter um, uh, you'll find David. Uh, crying out, um, I am for peace, but, but, but these, these around me are, are for war. You find in the lips of David in the Psalms, the very prayers he prayed um, when facing the circumstances that he's facing um, here in 1 Samuel. And, and it helps us to consider a bit um, what's actually going on as you reflect on what unfolds in this story. What appears to be a fairly simple story is actually filled with complexity as we wrestle with um, all the circumstances that have led to this particular moment in chapter 27. For example, you and your family must flee. And you must flee to, I was trying to think of like the worst place I could think of in America. A bad part of New Jersey. I was going to say like Pueblo, but then there might be someone here from Pueblo and that was be unnecessarily offensive. So let's just go with a bad part of New Jersey. And if you're from New Jersey, I'm more than welcome your iPhotos of the pretty places in New Jersey. I'm talking about the part of New Jersey that is a large parking lot. Um, you must flee to New Jersey. Um, but prior to fleeing to New Jersey, um, your wife and your oldest son had warned you, hey, if you'll just do this, or if you'll just do this, everything's going to work out. And you didn't do the thing that they told you to do for moral conviction or whatever the reason might be, and then you find yourself in New Jersey in a parking lot, living in a very, very unpleasant set of circumstances. What's going on at home during that move? Um, David is about to go to a place called Ziklag. I don't know much about Ziklag. I know that Ziklag plays some, it has some historical importance um, later on uh, for Israel. We're going to talk a little bit about the a redemptive significance of Ziklag, but I can't imagine going to Ziklag, living among the Philistines, who wants to live around the uncircumcised Philistines, um, that that was something that everybody was really happy about. And if you'll remember, those going with David to go live in Ziklag, these 600 men and their families and children, so we're probably looking um, at a group of people in the thousands, um, 
as they go and live among the Philistines, away from their people, away from their cities, away from their lands, away from their nation, um, that, that had to be rolling around in those men's minds, David, you had two chances to kill Saul. And we wouldn't have to be here. We wouldn't have to live in Ziklag, New Jersey parking lot of ancient Israel, Palestine, or Philistine, Philistia. Like, there, there's, there, there has to be a rising um, in this group of men, the, the realization like, hey, God delivered Saul into your hands twice. Like, how many times does he have to put you in these circumstances? Um, but because you refuse to take action, because you refuse... Um, to do the thing that, that all of us told you you need to do, now we're stuck here fleeing to the enemies of God, fleeing to the enemies of God's people um, to find some semblance of safety. There's things going on in the text um, that are just right there if you have ears to hear what unfolded in the previous three chapters. Um, the men who followed David to Ziklag, the men who followed David to Gath, the men who've been... Um, exiled now from the land of Israel, from everything they've known and fought for, were the ones that had given David um, advice, had counseled him to do something that would have prevented them from having to take these steps. But where have things come to now that we arrive in chapter 27? Well, um, we know that Saul twice now has acknowledged um, before everyone who could listen um, before God and before David, that what he's doing was wrong. His pursuit of David was driven by sin, um, that, that, that David is more righteous than he was. He's even said in chapter 26 that David himself would be made king, asks for David's mercy upon his family, and asks David to come back and live in Saul's house. But what we know as soon as we turn to chapter 27 is Saul is still pursuing David. Consider for a moment the insanity of sin. It's not merely kind of a singular act taken in a moment of weakness. It is the kind of thing that can corrupt all the way down. And so Saul's envy, Saul's assumption of, of greatness has driven him to the point that he can say out loud and in public, what I'm doing is wrong, and then find himself doing it again and again and again and again. Instead of fighting the enemies of God, instead of doing the thing the kings are called to do, he's chasing down the Lord's anointed, seeking to kill him because he's driven mad with envy. So David says to himself, there's no stain here. This isn't going to stop. So the best thing that I can do for me and for my men is not to kill Saul, but instead we're going to go and live in the land of, with the Philistines. And particularly we're going to go to the city of Gath. And so David takes 600 men with their wives and children, so we're probably looking at a few thousand, um, which leads us to probably think there was some arrangements made with Achish before they show up. Um, <laughs> I think if David shows up with 600 men at your gate, you're not just going to welcome them in with joy. Um, and so they go to the city of Gath. You'll remember from, uh, from earlier in 1 Samuel, Gath is Goliath's hometown. 
Uh, so David would have been fairly well known. Um, he's the guy that killed the star football player um, that came out of our small town. Um, and so David goes back to Gath and, uh, and there asks um, to live there with Achish. Uh, but David's smart, doesn't want to be under the eye, the watchful eye of Achish. Um, and so he says, hey, we don't want to be, uh, why should we stay here? Why should we kind of be depleting the resources of this city, um, Gath? Uh, will you send us somewhere else? And so Achish gives him the town of Ziklag. Um, and so David goes and lives with his men and their families in Ziklag, um, which would have been about 25 miles away from Gath. Now Gath, uh, and you might think 25 miles, like that's what we drive to go to, I don't know, where you would drive is 25 miles, but go to eat dinner somewhere. Um, uh, but uh, in that day, you had to walk there, you had to take a donkey there. Um, this was a long journey. It's not a journey you're going to do. Um, every day, and you can't make it there back in a day. Um, and so this is just far enough, just close enough to be under Achish's protection, and just far enough out to not be under Achish's direct uh, view of what's, what's going on. Um, David then goes about taking his men and attacking um, cities uh, that would have been in the kind of the land line between Israel and, uh, and the lands um, connected to Gath. Um, and those cities that are listed um, are cities that were promised to Israel. Israel was actually given those cities uh, when they came out of the wilderness and were meant to come in under Joshua and come into the land and to take the land. But they were cities that were left unconquered. Well, David goes to these cities um, and begins executing God's judgment, killing um, the men and the women in those cities um, taking the livestock for himself. But when he goes back to Achish, um, he refers to the attacks he's been, um, he's been executing. Um, and the, even the language that he uses here is a, a little bit more vague. He's not saying, hey, I attacked this particular place or this particular city. Um, that The use of the word Negev means I, I attacked this region. Um, but the language that he uses there is meant to imply to Achish, meant to deceive Achish, um, into Achish thinking he's actually attacking his own people. He's actually attacking towns associated with Israel, even though um, David is attacking towns associated with Israel's enemies. He keeps attacking those cities, and he does so, so that Achish will trust him. Um, so that Achish won't kick him out, that Achish won't come against him, um, and instead Achish will uh, think that David is what exactly what he says there at the end in verse 12 um, that David has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, um, and therefore he'll always have to serve me. He's never going to turn against me um, for the sake and the name of Israel. Um, so you have this interesting situation where David and his men must go into exile, must leave their land, uh, must leave the place, um, the, the, the very place where David has been anointed to be king. He must leave the, the place and the people that he's been anointed to be king over to go and live with the enemies of God in Gath, or near Gath, and then from, from that place actually begins to launch strategic attacks against the enemies of God. That's the, the kind of social, political, even historical situation that's happening in 27. That David is in exile, he's been forced from his own people, he's living under the care and the protection of a pagan king, and while under the protection of that pagan king, goes and attacks and kills other pagan kings. 
So that's the situation. What should we observe? Uh, the other, other one, sorry, two last things um, to take note of. Uh, when you think of Philistia, or you think of the Philistines, um, you shouldn't think of a kind of how, like, like a nation with states. Um, it, it would have been more like city-states that all kind of followed the same sort of religious patterns. Um, and so Gath would have had its own king, um, and it would occasionally band together with the other kings from the other um, Philistine city-states, and they then would go and make war on their enemies. But for the most part, um, Gath is functioning um, mostly independently and occasionally cooperating with other towns and cities uh, around Philistia. The, the other thing um, is Ziklag, and its distance, again, from Gath is 25 miles. Um, but Ziklag was a city that had, had been in the Old Testament promised to Simeon, um, and it, again was promised to Israel. So that's another element that's coming into play in this text. So Achish sends David to a city that God had promised belonged to the people of God. There's another, uh, a number of other things I want us to observe in this text. Um, there, there is a, a pattern in this text. In fact, I think this is one of the primary things that I pray that we would see in 1 Samuel 27. There's a pattern that, that, that has run through 1 Samuel. It actually runs through the whole of Scripture. If you remember at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, at the last time on the place where the Spirit of the Lord rested, namely the ark, um, the Philistines defeated Israel and the ark was sent into exile. Um, the ark goes into exile and there God makes war on Israel's enemies and defeats them. Here, God, uh, David, um, the one where the anointing of God, the, the resting, the, the one possessing, the, the one on whom the Spirit of God rests, is sent into exile among God's enemies and there defeats God's enemies. There is a pattern at the heart of this text um, that we, frankly, don't often like to apply to our own lives. But this is how God always works. He, he takes us into exile before he can restore us. And there in exile is where he does some of his most marvelous work. He, he takes Jesus into the grave. And there in the grave, um, seemingly under the domain of God's enemies, um, there God's enemies are defeated. I mean, this is how God works. And it's how it works in David's life. I asked you a few weeks ago to consider the, the, the wildness of what it would be like to be David. You've been anointed as king. You've served faithfully alongside Saul. Um, um, you, you fought um, vigorously. You defeated the enemies of Saul. You defeated the enemies of God. Um, you, you've been a loyal and faithful servant. Um, and, then and then Saul throws a spear at you, tries to kill you. Um, you must flee because Saul has grown envious of you and he's trying to destroy you. And so you, the anointed king of Israel, um, the one promised the throne, promised the blessing of God, must go and live in the wilderness. And then you spare Saul's life. And yet you must stay in the wilderness. And then Saul comes back to kill you Again, and you must stay in the wilderness, still running for your life. And, and all sorts of people are gathering to you. Some of them worthless men, the Bible tells us. And then you, the anointed king 
of Israel, who served faithfully, who's been promised the throne of Israel, um, not only must you now live in the wilderness of your own nation, now you must go and live among those who do not do not love your God. In fact, they hate your God. They worship false gods. And yet this is what God does. Bringing exile, bringing seeming death, bringing us to the brink of what appears to be an absolutely lost cause. And it is precisely there that he does his work. It is precisely there that he overcomes his enemies. It's precisely there where he brings blessing and life. This is the pattern throughout scripture. You think of um, the ark going into Philistia. You also think of Jesus going into the grave. You also think of Israel going, being sent into exile in Babylon. And they're finding in the midst of Babylon nurture and life and the king of Babylon himself um, being converted and, um, and then being sent back, the people of God restored, the worship, the, the temple rebuilt and worship reestablished. This is what God does. Paul fleeing Jerusalem, there the enemies of God being defeated as the word of Christ is preached Men die and are made alive again by having faith in the gospel. This is what God does. Sometimes in the midst of what appears to be death and exile and loss, it is precisely there that God is beginning to do something absolutely glorious that you cannot fathom. That the golden age of Solomon and David's reign was marked by the establishment of peace. And that peace could only come when these cities were conquered and defeated. And God sent David to Ziklag so that he and his men might defeat those enemies. And the kingdom of God and the peace of God would be established over Israel under his reign. Second thing I would like you to observe, I want us to consider... From this, from, this, from this text is, um, it's notable later on in the prophets. Uh, the prophets would rise and they would speak judgment against Israel and they would generally speak judgment against the nations surrounding Israel for their sin, for their idolatry, for their wickedness. Gath is never mentioned in those judgment texts. A number of scholars have pointed out that, that something's going on just by David's presence um, alongside Achish um, that, that, that leads to kind of a cultural or religious heritage in Gath um, that persists well beyond David's own reign. Um, we're going to find Achish um, in, a, in a few chapters actually swearing allegiance to Yahweh, swearing in the name of Yahweh. Um, there is in this painful situation, this confusing situation, in this exilic situation, um, God is actually at work in and through David um, to bring the word of Yahweh to the nations itself, themselves. Thereby conquering God's enemies and converting God's enemies. You'll find um, the Philistines judged pronouncedly in the book of Amos as those, all of those cities are listed and Gath is notably 
absent. Next. There is a call in, in some of the weakest moments we will face, in the places where we feel like we've been most abandoned, um, the places where we feel we're most in exile, that we're closest to death, that it's precisely there that God calls us to persist in faithfulness and particularly the faithfulness of fighting. The faithfulness of making war on sin. Um, the faithfulness of making war on God's enemies. The faithfulness of holding fast to the gospel, but not just holding fast so you don't drown, but holding fast as you hold fast to the word of God as a sword, um, declaring what is true and beautiful and good. There is work that God intends to do smack dab in the midst of your own exile, smack dab in the midst of our own exile. But we as a people currently live in the midst of a city and a state and a nation um, that, that um, in, in terms of the prevalent culture in our day um, is marked by just as much evil as, as the Philistines. But worshiping at the altar of Moloch, sacrificing our children, um, waging war on refusing the greatness of God, the glory of God, the feast of God. And it's precisely here um, that God intends to do work. We often think of seasons like this one um, for the church. And frankly, the, the evangelical church in our nation is largely taking this posture that we just need to keep our heads down, try to hold on, try to be faithful. But do you understand that it's precisely here, precisely in this moment, where God wants to do his greatest work of reformation and revival? Precisely here, where it looks like the people of God are being crushed, are in exile. Um, we're off in some town called Ziklag, just trying to have peacefully have our worship services. That precisely here, by holding fast to the word of God, by confessing the gospel of God, by being unashamed of the judgments of God in scripture, and the mercy of God held up in scripture, that it's precisely in that moment, by wielding that sword, that God brings victory. That God brings reformation. That God brings revival. That God has not called us to go and form some alternative city in hiding. He sent us to this place that we might faithfully, declaring the word of God, holding fast to the word of God, trusting the word of God, singing the word of God, um, talking of the word of God in our homes and in our churches. Conquer his enemies and bring many from death to life. The trouble is, and this is where we'll end, to get to those enemies, you've got to go to Ziklag. To be brought back from exile, you have to go into exile. To enjoy resurrection, you have to die. And for far too many of us, the desire to be liked, the desire to not be noticed as one of those kinds of Christians, the desire for some of us just to avoid conflict, is so strong that we're unwilling to die. They're unwilling to taste resurrection and reformation and revival and renewal in our day. And so we keep our heads down 
avoiding conflict, we keep our heads down, avoiding being thought ill of, we keep our heads down, making sure we're mostly liked and thought of as nice folk, refusing to hold fast to the word that God has given us with joy, with hospitality, yes, but also holding fast to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because holding fast to that word and wielding that word and declaring that word and singing that word and embodying that word in uncompromising ways will require you to die. So God bids us come and die. That we might know life. He bids us come and die. That our neighbors might know life. He bids us come and die so that our children would know life. But make no mistake, he bids us come and die. Let's pray and prepare for communion.